Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Hey, it's Not Real Art, the podcast, series favorite art and culture podcast with your host, Man One and Sourdough. Yo, yo. <laughs> I don't even know. You seem relaxed. Do I? Yeah. Do I normally seem like stressed and anxious? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, I'm, I'm relaxed. I think in part because we're hanging out. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I fucking love when we do our podcast. No distractions. Just you and me chopping it up. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, what sort of stress? Stress about? About the only thing is to make sure we don't lose the episode. <laughs> No one's listening anyway, so <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't know. We're getting a few subscribers. We're getting some positive feedback. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure there are haters out there, but, you know, they haven't said much. We need more haters. I want, yes, that's right. You know you're doing something right when you have a lot of haters. Yeah. Yeah. More haters, more problems, <laughs> and more money. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm relaxed in part because I just got back from a little family vacay. That's right. That's right. Took the... Uh, the my, you know the the wifey and I took the kiddos uh, mm-hmm. for a little little family vacay, and um, <laughs> you know I'm relaxed now because now it's over. Yeah, <laughs> now I'm relaxed. Yeah. So being on the beach in Hawaii with a one year old and a five year old isn't isn't relaxing. Hell no, it's not <laughs> relaxing. You know how much blocking and tackling and saving of drowning babies I was doing and yeah, say nothing of the shark attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I've come to believe about traveling with kids, whether they're mine or, or anyone else's. I can only, I can only talk about my kids, right? But here's what I've come to. Well, you should to... only be traveling with your kids, by the way. <laughs> For the record. You shouldn't be traveling right. with anyone else's right. kids. Right. Without that's not express called, tra- written, that's not called traveling. Without, without express <laughs> written consent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, traveling. It's not, it's not trafficking. It's yeah. traveling. <laughs> it's not kidnapping. It's traveling. Traveling. <laughs> yeah. What is, there's an interesting line between human trafficking and traveling. Yeah. Now, what I've come to, to believe about traveling with my kids is that you know when it comes to flying with ki- with my kids from yeah. point A to point B wherever point A or point B is, it basically sucks. It's the flying part. <laughs> the, the flying part, no matter where or how long. It, flying with kids is a pain in the ass. I don't care. Right. I don't care what anybody says. Anybody acts like it's easy or it's no big deal. They're 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 lying to themselves. They're lying to you. They're like you know, mm-hmm. tr- flying with kids. Is a pain in the ass. So do they each have their own seat? Well, no. My son sat in my lap. Right. And my daughter had her own seat. Okay. But my son is a maniac. There's three seats and four of you. Yes. Yeah, got it. My son is, you know, 30-pound maniac. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he just does not sit down. He's a precocious boy's boy. You know, yeah. and he's a strong. You know what my new nickname for my son is? What? Bam Bam. Bam. Yeah, that that's a good one actually. That's yeah. Bam Bam. He is Bam Bam. He's Bam Bam. He's you're built right. like Bam Bam. Yeah, you're right. You know the guns on this kid. He's 17 months almost, and he's got guns. Like his, yeah. you know, he's strong as hell, 
and he's determined as hell and he's cute as hell. It's a, it's a triple threat. He's a yeah. triple threat. And, um, he's bam, bam, bam. He's bam, bam, bam. That's right. That's what he is. And so, you know, dealing with him on, on the plane is always exhausting. <laughs> and, uh, and then my daughter, do- my daughter is at an age now where she can, she can kind of chill watching a movie or whatever, you know, she's, but she's still up and crazy doing her own thing, you know, like she wants to yeah. do this, do that, whatever. But, you know, and so, you know, getting, getting there, arriving mm-hmm. is a relief. Um, <laughs> and there are wonderful, beautiful, precious moments that are so lovely Yeah, that you say to yourself, oh, right, this is why we do it. But then <laughs> those moments are incredibly fleeting. <laughs> And then there's just a bunch of more the craziness and stress. Yeah. You know, and you think, why the hell are we doing this? And then there's another beautiful moment and you're like, oh, this is why we do it. Yeah. So really you're just trying to get to those beautiful moments. Right. You know, and trying to get as many of them, you know, as fast as you can. <laughs> as close together. As close together. Because, yeah. Uh, because yeah, otherwise it's, uh, it's interesting. So I am, I'm saying all this to say that I, I think I'm becoming a big advocate for Renting an RV, packing the kids in the car, and doing yeah. road trips to our amazing national parks, stuff like that. Do you think that would be that would be less of a headache or what? Well, no, it wouldn't. No, no, it would be a different kind of headache. Right. That's all. I mean, it's going to be a headache. Yeah, a different yeah, kind yeah. of headache. But but let me be. I mean, one of the point I'm trying to get, like for me, the the real pain and suffering comes on the plane, flying, okay. getting to the airport, through the airport, onto the plane sitting on the plane flying and then that portion that part of it yeah to me is what i really you know take issue with <laughs> yeah you know yeah road tripping with the kids in the rv doing whatever yeah. and yelling and screaming and stuff like Doesn't i know that's you. like oh it would okay. have its own thing yeah. but like I'm, I'm ready to try it i'm ready to <laughs> you're ready for that i'm ready to just go there you know right and see what i could bitch about you know with that because you know, kids don't want to be contained. No, that's the problem with a plane, right? You're in a container. I don't think I ever flew with my kids until they were like around ten years old. Yeah, it's a smart man. You're smart. So, yeah. Why didn't I talk to you first? <laughs> my wife's like, but I want our kids to be children of the world. I'm like, they're f- five. They're they're five years old. They're two years. They're not even t- like. They got their whole lives to be children of the world. You know what? I just, not to burst your bubble, but you could have taken them down to Santa Monica and then later on in life told them, yeah, that was Hawaii. <laughs> right. They would have said, awesome. I could have given them a lay and a, <laughs> and a, and a sort of kind of uh, tropical drink, uh, yeah. you know, rum, <laughs> uh, you know, Tahitian kind of like a cocktail. Right. And a glass, you know, bottle glass to hold and, you know, they will, you know point you know put the ocean behind them they wouldn't have known any different call it a day call it a day yeah i mean look you know right it's not about me anymore right it is all about the kids and you know the truth is that it is awesome to see their consciousness expand sure yeah you know see that because you can see, because it's, I mean, you know, yeah. there's nothing there. So, right. you know, you can notice the change. The change is pretty revolutionary. It's kind of, yeah. you can see the light bulbs going off. Right. And so that's cool. You know, yeah. I like seeing their minds open and their consciousness expand. That's that's pretty cool. But we should just do it in an RV. <laughs> so, yes, I'm relaxed. 
after my uh, my family so, vacation. So to to jump off from the RV talk. Sure. So now that my kids are on the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. they're all, you know, my daughter's 18, my boys are 20. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty much done raising them. Quit, please quit bragging. So oh, I'm fucking proud of it. Are you <laughs> fucking proud of it. They survived. I didn't kill them. Yeah, that's and huge. There's halfway decent kids. They are uh, great kids. So so we're planning. We we want to go to the Grand Canyon. We've never been to the Grand Canyon. Yes. You know? Yes. Right. So you know, I don't know if we're gonna do it. You know, in the spring or next summer right. or whatever. But you know, we want to do that. So because of our of our recent experience with the RV. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, which went all bad. It was like the hottest day of the year and the air yeah. conditioning went out. Yeah. yeah, it was the hottest day of the year. There was no air conditioning. So you're it, basically sleeping in an oven. It was sleeping in an oven. It was miserable. <laughs> so now the so now Laura wants to do this new thing where we just drive to wherever the destination is mm-hmm. and they bring the RV to you. So you don't even drive the RV. Oh. They right. just, instead of pitching a tent, they just pull up That's the freaking cool. RV. Yeah. Well, that that's what my wife says. She's yeah. like, that's how we're doing it now. Right. We're just we're just gonna drive drive sorry <laughs> drive it wherever. We're just gonna drive to wherever the destination is. Right. Have them deliver the RV. Right. And then when we're done, they come pick it up. Right. They come pick up the RV and they leave. Right. And we go on our way. How, how about that? I kind of dig that shit. <laughs> right? That sounds amazing, actually. <laughs> you know, because I mean, driving an RV can't be easy. No, you know, it's got it's a whole thing. I don't know if you've ever seen those viral videos of the RVs like yeah, swerving, swerving, swerving across the lanes because they do something stupid or the winds or whatever blow right. them over and right. Yeah, and, and if something goes wrong on the weekend, you call them and say, "Hey, the AC went out." Oh, so it's like full service. Yeah, in that regard, it's like it's like, "Hey, the, the AC went out." Right. Come bring us a new one. So I think that's what we're going to do next time. Well, you know, that sounds amazing. And, you know, keep me posted because <laughs> if there's a lawyer, <laughs> if there's a membership club, uh, I may want to join it. Right. But that's the thing about RVs. I've done uh, some work uh, in the RV industry. Right. And one of the dirty little secrets about the industry that they don't want to talk about is that at the end of the day, product quality sucks. Right. Like these RVs are, are they, they, the you know, shit happens to them. And getting them repaired, service and maintenance, right? Uh, very difficult, very right. challenging. Because the dealer isn't going to fix it for you. Nope. The manufacturers don't have really a, a licensed uh, repair uh, teams that you know can fix your stuff. So you're oftentimes caught in a kind of a conundrum where everyone's pointing at the other person. And so, yeah, it's kind of the dirty little secret of the industry. So this, this service that you're talking about is really cool because, you know, it's like triple A for RVs or something, you know, it's like uh, Airbnb slash triple A. Right. (laughs) Right. But yeah. And you know, to your point, so what happened to us on this last trip at the lake is uh, we borrowed a, we borrowed an RV from uh, my brother-in-law, you know, the, when the AC went out on day one and it's 120 degrees, you know, then you have a problem because it's like, number one, we're way out there, you know, in the boonies. So uh, we can't take it somewhere to get serviced. Obviously it's a holiday weekend and everything's closed. We can't call my brother-in-law and say, Hey, you know, we just blew out your, <laughs> your AC or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were kind of stuck. So, but here's the trippy thing to your point was luckily my brother-in-law is an electrician. 
Right. So my dad's an electrician. It's good to have in the family. Yeah. So so my wife's brothers, mm-hmm. all four of them are electricians. So wow. Yeah. You're wired. And my father-in-law <laughs> and yeah. all his brothers yeah. are carpenters. Dude, so why we, are we, we in the we, construction we, we business? Could... <laughs> why are we why are we building houses? <laughs> right. <laughs> we should be in the wrong fucking business. It's amazing. We yeah. have like the turnkey team <laughs> yeah. right there. Right okay. there, you know? Okay. So what happened is my brother-in-law, being an electrician, mm-hmm. went in there and figured out that what happened is the the electrical panel, you know, just blew out blew or whatever. Up, burned up. It burned up because all the wiring. The microwave, the fridge, mm. the outlets, all the wiring, the AC mm-hmm. was on one. Oh, jeez. On one panel, you know? Jeez. One, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, it over, it short-circuited. Sure. All went out. Yeah. So, what he did is he now he uh, rewired the entire RV. Okay. <laughs> right. And, wow. And created two different, you know, right. two different panels so they can hold, right. you can share the load. Right. Who who would have done that? Who would have realized that? Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, have fucking yeah, known yeah, that. Yeah, no, you know, of course I not. Had no, you screwed. Been, yeah. yeah, I'd be like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. So um, unless you're an electrician and you know what the hell you're doing, you're, you're gonna be screwed if something goes out in your RV. Right. Right. But, yeah. That's a, yeah. a dirty secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. No, I mean, you know, there's, you know, the whole RV thing is interesting because they're kind of the industry's booming, and yeah. um, you know, millennials are embracing RVs in a way that they hadn't in the past. Um, RVs historically have been kind of relegated to, you know, retirees, um, yeah. you know, either, you know, retirees sort of taking off, you know, you know, cross country, uh, cross country, whatever, yeah. or, you know, I guess maybe folks that live in RVs, you know, full time, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, rednecks that use them for hunting and fishing or whatever the case might be. Yeah. You know, we used to call them, we used to call them the hook and bullet crowd. The hook and bullet crowd likes RVs a lot, right? But it was always like a recreational, right? Thing RVs, recreational vehicle. Now they're becoming a tool for people to live and work in, and you know, um, very live kind of a nomadic uh, life. Anyway, well, the RVs are also exploding, exploding in LA. You notice that they expl- they are I mean, exploding I mean, in LA. Well, they are exploding too. But I'm saying the <laughs> there's an explosion of RV RVs in LA, okay, because of the homeless problem. Sure, right, of course. You know, just where my studio's at, there's a stretch down this one street where there's literally like six RVs mm. parked there, mm-hmm. like all the time. Yeah, all the time, and it's just these homeless people who live in these RVs. Sure, and uh, probably about two months ago. One of them literally exploded. They were. They oh wow! Yeah, were they like, hurt? Were they okay? Did they get know. out? I don't know. I mean, I'm, were they uh, cooking meth? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Oh no shit! Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, they were. They were cooking meth, and and the fucking thing exploded. You know, so the so now there's this whole thing where they're trying to pass uh, all these laws now that uh, it's illegal to sleep in a vehicle. Did you hear about this? No. There's a new ordinance in the city of LA. No. It's illegal to sleep in a vi- vehicle overnight. Oh, Jesus. Right? And yeah, we want to help the homeless population in so the city. if you have a car and it's on the side, right? If you're sleeping in your car. So if you, you have a car. So at midnight, if you get out of your car and you sleep on the sidewalk next to your car, you won't get sighted. But if you sleep in your car, you'll get sighted. Okay. 
<laughs> you had to bring some stupid shit up. <laughs> this is this is Los Angeles. This is what's going on. No, but no, no, but this is fucking government. Yeah. Right? And this is but this is why whoa, you just opened a can <laughs> of worms. I you know, I, I I need to be careful with my words here. Yeah. But like because you know, I don't want to sound like a conservative because I'm not a conservative. But like this is to me overregulation, right? Bad policy, bad government, right? Because if somebody wants to fucking sleep in their car and die, take that risk, that's on them. Like, it makes no sense for the government to to say you can't sleep in your fucking car when that person's homeless. You want them sleeping. On, like, because it, it's hypocritical. On one hand, they're saying, what are we doing about the homeless population? We need to find affordable housing. We need to fix this. It's a mess. And then on the other hand, for those people that actually have a, happen to have a car and can have shelter and sleep in that car. Now they're saying, no, you can't do that because well, it, some well, asshole was cooking meth in an RV. It yeah. is an overreach. It no, is well, bad design. Well, the, the problem is, the reason the, the stupid shit's coming up is because it's people you know it's the the not in my backyard right sure so it's like sure they want to take care of the homeless and they want to you know oh you know it, it sucks that there's homeless people so then homeless people find figure out a way okay well if i get a vehicle and uh, i park on the side street then you know i won't be sleeping on the floor mm -hmm. but these people who live on that street are now calling the cops and saying hey there's cars parked in front of my house all day long right know? right and there's homeless people living inside there, right? Right. So the cops can't tow those cars because there's no ordinance against right. Right. parking in public. Right. So, you know, so yeah, so like to your point, it's like, so the city has to figure out this whole crazy way to, you know, come up with some quote unquote solution, which really isn't, on, on how to address the homeowners and, you know, but it is ridiculous. And a pause on the positive side, I just heard recently also that uh, they're allowing at the vets, at the mm -hmm, VA mm -hmm, down here, mm -hmm. that if you bring, if you're homeless and you don't have a place to stay, if you bring your vehicle, if you come in your vehicle and park on their lot, mm -hmm. they'll let you sleep there. This is exactly where I was going. I was thinking, it was like, where are the city parking lots that people can come and safely and, and you know, securely sleep Now they the have night. rules like no drugs. Yeah, of course, and of course. No you, have to, you have to have that shit. But I'm just saying like, and look, I know this is a complicated issue and there are a lot of smart people trying to figure it out. But just because some fucking asshole cooked meth in their RV and caused damage to themselves or to their property doesn't mean everybody has to suffer right. if some, you know, and, and to me, the, the whole conversation about big government versus little government is the wrong conversation. It's about the right government. I don't want big government or little government. I want smart government. Right. And this to me gets to that, right? It's right. like, it's like, you know, the lack of imagination and mm -hmm. the lack of creativity when it comes to policy design and, and creating things that work for the community at large that are practical, viable, reasonable. And, and I think this particular issue, you know, it, it got me excited because of the hypocrisy because you hit you. You have all these politicians talking about how they want to fix a homeless situation. Sure. And yet they've just, you know, boxed them out. Right. Of their own cars. Right. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. I guess George Carlin had the best solution. He said, put them on golf courses. 
you know right. he's like it's a racist and classist game anyways <laughs> yeah just you know we have thousands and thousands of acres of golf courses everywhere yeah you know? yeah for sure for sure <laughs> yeah man i don't know i don't know well anyway you know where do we even go I with that know. i don't know i'm just like we really well, how do we go from hawaii to homeless <sighs> you know well that's 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 the world we live in that's right? the world we live in from Hawaii to homeless. Hawaii to homeless. Now, yeah. now, are there homeless people in Hawaii? Did you notice that? Not that I was aware of. Yeah. You know, I did not see. We just, okay. So, obviously, Hawaii is several islands. Yeah. We went to Kauai. Okay. I did not notice anybody. Now, I did see some folks that seemed more like, what shall we call them? Like uh, hippie hikers that have been outdoors for a long time right and probably surf and smoke a lot of weed a lot and yeah. so they have that sort of patina of a of a of a homeless person you know <laughs> yeah you're not sure if that's a tan or if right. it's dirt or what but you right. know what you do have in hawaii um which i think is really interesting it feels like and i've only, i've been to hawaii three times now four times i've been to Kauai twice i've been to maui i've been to to Kona and you know every place is different or whatever but um but of course you know you have a situation right where the um indigenous folks that are there the Hawaiians that are there they're still there and you know and then you have you know everyone else the uh, who, you know the tourists but then you know the other residents that live there and it's interesting because well, I'm sure, well, I know there's great wealth there, you know, right. for the most, for the most part, things seem pretty balanced, mm. but there's also in quiet, there's also not a lot of people. Yeah. It is kind of a, how shall I, how shall I say? I mean, you know, rural or primitive kind of island. I mean, it's not developed. I mean, right. the, you know, there are, there are, you know, Pockets, cities and yeah. houses and shopping centers and stuff, but it's, but it's as those islands go, those Hawaiian islands go, this is probably one of the more less underdeveloped. And which island was that one? The Kauai. Kauai, yeah. okay. But, but what I'm, I'm trying to get to is this idea that it feels like a very family friendly right. kind of place, which probably stems from the Hawaiian uh, yeah, culture, culture more yeah. than anything, yeah. which is beautiful. Like it's a wonder, like everyone is, and it's, I guess it's typical of a lot of islands, but like island culture, you know. You're, you're out and on a rock in the middle of the ocean somewhere. I mean, it's laid back. It's um, it's it's kind of you know easy breezy for the most part. Everyone mm -hmm. is chill, like no one's stressed out or whatever. It didn't seem you know, the people that are stressed out are the tourists. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> and so the vibe there for a family, you know, vacationing or for just families living there seems like very like hospitable and nice and good. You know. Right. Now, are there jobs for people? Are there, what do people do? Yeah. You know, I mean, every place needs an electrician. Every place needs a plumber, tradesman, you know, all kinds of people that are working, you know, obviously with their hands and, you know, skills or yeah. whatever. Um, there's um, obviously a whole service industry, you know, yeah. restaurants and, and, and those kinds of things. The, you know, um, then you have your basic needs, you know, whether it's the hospital or the fire department or the air field or whatever. But it's, you're still on a rock in the middle of the ocean, right. you know, and if you need brain surgery, they're probably going to have to evacuate you to, to Maui or to Honolulu or right. to the mainland. You know what I mean? The resources on Kauai yeah. are pretty, you know, they're limited. limited yeah. They're limited. Yeah. Well, because I always hear, I've never been, but I always hear how expensive it is mm. and how work is, it's hard to find work. Sure. 
um, unless you're in those specific fields. Yeah. I've had friends who went out and lived out there for a little while and then decided to come back because they couldn't. Right. They could. They were struggling. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard that too. I, I mean, I get this, you know, sense that that probably keeps the population pretty limited. And what issues there might be between the haves or the have-nots or the the Hawaiians and the the whites, you know, like, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not there. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I didn't get really a sense of it while I was there. You know, the thing that was, I don't know, to kind of maybe, you know, segue into a conversation about it that seems more germane to the podcast than, than, than uh, general discussion is about how observing the, the arts mm-hmm. community there, yeah. you know, and again, having only really been to, you know, just kind of one area to the, yeah. to the Hanalei. Hanalei. Oh, that's what the shirt is. <laughs> Hanalei, right. there you go. Uh, Kauai area. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, inevitably, and you get this a lot in tourist towns anyway, right? You get a lot of little galleries and a little, you know, artisan yeah. stuff and whatever. But I was, you know, yet again, reminded of, of, of how environment shapes art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me, right? Um, I mean, what would happen, right, to your art if Man One did a cultural exchange with an artist from, you know, Kauai, right? So in other words, artists from Hanalei moved to, you know, downtown LA and to your studio. And um, you moved into their studio in Hanalei and you had to live there for a year, right? right? How would your art change? Because the environment changed. How would their art change? Because their environment changed. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, I've been to a lot of places where it's beautiful and pristine Mm -hmm. and, and I imagine, you know, Hawaii being like that. And I don't want to fucking paint graffiti. Right. <laughs> when right. when there's beautiful nature all around. Mm-hmm. Like I I it doesn't it doesn't jive, you know? Like okay. I, I remember being in the mountains in Japan mm-hmm. doing a graffiti workshop in Osaka. We were doing it on canvas in this really beautiful, you know, mountain with like a hundred students or whatever. And uh, even then I felt weird. And we we're painting on canvas, we weren't painting on walls or anything. But even then it felt so weird because there's this culture that you're now, you know, kind of intruding on. Yes. With your own, you know, type of art form that, you know, doesn't really belong there. You know, it doesn't belong in that culture and especially in that setting. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be be really weird. You know, I I think I think I'd most definitely change, you know, the my approach. I think, you know, I find that super fascinating because I've wondered about that, you know, a lot, right? Even the fact of using spray can. Yeah. Like you'd probably be more, you know, concerned about your environment and what harm a spray can can do. Interesting. Right. You know, but then again, powwow was starting in Hawaii, right? I believe it was. So you got all those artists out there Mm -hmm. who are doing stuff for powwow and- Mm -hmm. And, uh, but th- is that mostly on the, it's in the city. In the That's, city I right? think they started in, uh, Honolulu, or the Honolulu I think. I yeah. It was in one of the cities. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was one of the, so, I mean, and I know they work with a lot of local artists, so right. that's an interesting. Well, but okay. So, and this kind of bumps into the whole, you know, graffiti versus street art conversation, but, yeah. but just taking it back to the original kind of 
premise is that, you know, to what extent does the environment shape art and how would your art change if you change your environment? And to what extent as you as a graffiti artist, was that, was, you know, to what extent was that a byproduct of the fact that you were born and raised in in, in Los Angeles? Right. And then when you go to whether, I don't care if it's Hanalei or or Laguna Beach, you know, you go to Laguna Beach and you're going to see a ton of watercolor uh, paintings of the sunset right and the beach and the coast and the you know yeah yeah landscape stuff yeah and so and you see that a lot in hawaii mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. you also see a lot of uh, what we'll call arts and crafts and artisan kinds of of, of artworks right. whether it be jewelry and pottery and you know crystals and sure. you know you got that new age thing happening that it can happen in a beautiful wilderness uh, island kind of setting but then of course because of the indigenous uh, history and, right. and the yeah. tra- you have all of you know all of their art which right. is really the cool stuff I right. mean like that's what you want you know yeah. and this this whole idea of oceanic art and um, what does that mean in the Polynesian culture and you know and, and so to me that was super interesting um, and unfortunately I it was the last day I was there I discovered this um, gallery that was all about oceanic art as they called it um, but it um you know, beautiful stuff. But I mean, they even had stuff in there from like Papua New Guinea or whatever. But I mean, it was like a lot of like Hawaiian stuff as well. But I don't know. I mean, you know, there was a ton of watercolor of sunsets there too. You know what I mean? So it's like, to your point about, yeah, I didn't see graffiti. I didn't see street art. Now, yeah, I saw murals. I saw a few murals. But, you know, those murals were there probably 20 years ago. Yeah. They weren't called street art then. And it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't street art. They were murals. Sure. If you, you know, if you can appreciate what I'm saying, you know. Right, right. I'm, you know, celebrating the local community or something. I can't remember who it was, but there was an artist uh, one time told me that, you know, artists adapt to their environment. Yeah. So if you live in a one bedroom studio apartment, your work is going to reflect that. Right. You know, because you're limited by scale, size, whatever. Sure. So, you know, if you live in the city, your work's going to reflect that. If mm-hmm. you live in the wilderness, you know. So, I mean, I definitely think that because, dude, come on, light, that's what art is. That's what art is, right? It's it's life. It's like if you're being true to yourself, then you're expressing, you know, your surroundings. You're expressing who you are, where you're at, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's why I love traveling. Yeah. Because when I come back, I'm so inspired. Right. I'm able to see things differently in new light and for a new perspective and integrated into, you know, what I'm doing here, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it would be, it would definitely change my art if I went, lived somewhere like that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you talk about the limits of one's environment, you know, you, you, of course you were very kind not to point out the limits of one's own skill set and talent and abilities. I mean, you right. as an artist, you know, let's be frank, right? A lot of graffiti artists are one trick ponies. Yeah, that's true. Okay. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm just saying that it's a fact, right? They do what they do, and that's all that they do. You know, they can't pick up a paintbrush and do a portrait necessarily, right? right? And that's great. They're very, they're excellent at what they do, you know, but to be a multidisciplinary artist is a different thing. And you are a very unusual graffiti artist in that you actually studied art at university, and have your art degree, fine art degree, and you are a multidisciplinary artist. You can pick up a paintbrush sure. and do a portrait work. So you could move to Hawaii and adapt 
because your skill set and talent abilities are robust enough that you can flex and evolve and adapt. A lot of artists wouldn't be able to do that. Now, would they figure out a way and find a way? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're a true artist, you're going to figure it out. But I think the more tools in your toolbox, the better off you're going to be. And, you know, I think, you know, you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox as an artist, but. Well, also like your, your market, right? Because now you're on an island. So if you're going to make a a living as an artist, you have to be able to, to know who your audience is. Yeah. You know, you're limit, you really are limiting yourself by just being on an island, like literally, right? Because now, so maybe more, more people try to, as an artist, maybe you can try to sell to tourists. So you got to do touristy type of work. Right, right. So you can make a living because, you know, you know, here in LA, you may have, you know, there's thousands and thousands of art collectors in sure, LA. Sure, And you, you may don't, you may only have a handful on, a, on an island, right? Well, and would, yeah, no, it's such an interesting thing to ponder because would a watercolor of Sunset in Hawaii sell in down in a gallery in downtown LA, right? You know, where does it have a best chance of selling? You know, in at its source origin, source of, of origin, or in some faraway land. I mean, part of what I'm getting at is, you know, you talk about, you know, selling to tourists. And what it struck me, of course, is that, you know, all these little galleries, of course, have the same fucking problem that every other fucking gallery has in terms of marketing and promotion and selling through. And how do they market beyond their current customer? So, of course, that gets to, you know, internet and web and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, I don't know. I mean, is somebody going to be in New York City going to be inclined to go and search for a beautiful watercolor of the sunset in in Hanalei when they're not in Hanalei? Probably not. And if they are, it's probably a, you know, small percentage. But that reminds me of... um, so, you know, the artist, uh, Wyland. Yeah, sure. Right. So, I mean, he's a great example of someone who found a niche, mm-hmm. right. And, um, I guess maybe he started in Laguna. Yeah, I think so. Um, Long Beach. Maybe. But, you know, he has galleries in mm-hmm. Hawaii yeah. and, right. you know, all these places all over the world and, you know, smart guy. I mean, not, not only is he a good artist, but he's a smart guy and uh, knows about marketing, knows about business. Actually, I just downloaded, um, a book he has. It's a free download. If you mm-hmm. go to his website, you mm-hmm. sign up to his website, mm-hmm. his newsletter. Mm-hmm. Again, smart marketer. Mm-hmm. You, you sign up to his newsletter and he sends you free his book called, uh, I think it's called uh, Don't Be a Starving Artist or How Not to Be a Starving Artist, something like that it's called. Oh, I got to get it. Yeah. And so I have it on my phone and just- um, You know what? Just forward it to me. I'll forward it to you. Yeah. I know. I, I'm not you, signing you up. Sign up. Like, like, see, now that's smart. That's- I outsmarted, you outsmarted his smartness. Smart. <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, he has all these little tips. Mm. Really, you know, some are very simple, some are, you know, whatever, but it's his experience. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is like, for example, he's always had a studio where he lives, right? And his studio always has a section for a gallery, Sure. So that he's working yeah. and can sell work as well. Yep. And so that's how he's always set himself up, mm-hmm. no matter where he goes. So any any of his galleries, I guess, are also his studio. Yeah. So it's just like a very smart way of. Well, and I understand. Uh, it's my understanding that his big murals are lost leaders. 
right for the most part so he'll do this could be this is what i've heard i don't know yeah. if it's true or not but it yeah. seems reasonable that yeah he does the big murals and on his own dime because of course they're the biggest billboards and marketing right for people that then end up at his store his studio or some other place and he talks about the importance of attaching you know some kind of charity yeah sure to your to your mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. to find to you know, find a purpose in your yeah. work yeah, and yeah, yeah. social ob- obviously good. like yeah. you know not everyone's into you know whales and yeah. ocean art right but there's people who are into the environment right that's and right. there's people who will support him right. just because of that. Right. It's weird. That's where we got on this tangent about Wyland because um, I just saw a post at the Beyond the Street show, mm-hmm. and Slick was with with Wyland, giving him a tour. No kidding. Yeah, Wyland was there, and he, <laughs> he gave him a tour. Yeah, nice. And so um, that was kind of trippy, you know. That's really cool. So, um, but yeah, so shout out to Wyland. Yeah, and no Slick. Kidding. Shout yeah, out to Slick for sure. Slick, what up? <laughs> Slick, you don't know this, but. I'm a collector of yours. Actually, you do know this. We've met previously at Crew West briefly one day, but um, I bought the uh, Janet Jackson piece. Oh, I may right. recall. That's right. This conversation about, because we're all shaped by our environment. I mean, you know, the conversation that we're talking, you know, we're all shaped by our environment on multiple levels. And so why wouldn't an artist and their art be shaped by their environment or inspired or influenced or whatever by their environment? Um and but to me, the interesting thing is like, how would it evolve if artists drastically changed, you know, their environment? You know, I mean, give me talk about white white privilege. Give me one of these rich white chicks out of Laguna Beach who paints watercolor sunsets all day long. Yeah, and let's put her downtown L.A. adjacent to the homeless uh, front lines of the homeless, yeah, and let's see how up. her art changes if she can, you know, if she can even she won't survive, survive it. Yeah, she won't survive. But um, how funny we mentioned Slick. Slick is from Hawaii originally. Oh, right. Yes. Right? Sure. You, know, you can see how he uh, blossomed yeah, <laughs> in LA. No kidding. <laughs> well, we got to have him on the show. You got yeah, to reach out to him and invite him to, you know. We got we to gotta figure out who our next guest is going to be. I know, man. We haven't had a guest in a while. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. So it's a very special oh, yeah. privilege to be a guest on our yeah, podcast. Yeah, not anyone can just call in and. Asked that's to be no, on that's it. No, we're we, very we've, selective. We've said no to a lot of people. We have said no to a lot. We've said no to countless people. I, I've, I've lost count. Remember when Donald Trump called and we told him to fuck off? Do you remember that one? Well, it was his people called. Yeah. It was, really, it, no, it, no, was, no, no. it was really him disguised as his people, though. Well, right, because he right, does his yeah. own voices. Yeah. He, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting uh, little podcast we're developing here. I, I know I'm a fan. You're a fan? Are you subscribed to our podcast? <laughs> I am subscribed. Are you subscribed? I don't think I'm subscribed, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to fire your ass. But I, I will be. I'll subscribe. But I am subscribed to Wyland's newsletter. Which you're going to send me the book so I don't have to subscribe. So there you go. Uh, free giveaways. <laughs> People are suckers for free giveaways. Did yeah. you find the book useful? Was it Was it? I mean, was there good still, stuff? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it I've already kind of knew. Yeah, right. Uh, which is good, which mm-hmm. is like... You know, but yeah, there's a, there's a few gems in there. But it's interesting if the book is about what's the book called again? I think it's uh, how not to be a starving artist or something. Yeah, something like that. Or so, don't be a starving artist. So like clearly, it seems like based on the title, yeah, that his primary audience are fellow artists or other yes. artists, 
and yet he wants people to sign up for his newsletter. Yeah. And I'm guessing the newsletter is more of a consumer-based mass market newsletter. Yes. So I wonder if he's, you know, losing, I mean, is everybody signing up just to get the book, whether you're an artist or not, or is he like, are a lot of people not signing up because they don't find the book interesting because they're not an artist? You know what I mean? Like, I think if you sign up as a, as a newsletter, he doesn't really... There's a link somewhere on mm-hmm. where I found it and said, oh, by the way, I have this book. And if you just sign up, you'll get it, you know? Right. So I think people just sign up. But to be honest, I don't think I've even received one newsletter email blast yet. <laughs> right, right. So, oh, you will. You'll, you'll get I some will? stuff. You think so? Yo, you'll get something. It's already been like a month, though. I think uh, he's lagging. He, 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 I have think you he's checked lagging. your junk folder? Oh, yeah, that junk folder. Yeah, it's probably in the it's junk folder. It's probably there. Well, there you go. No, but it, I mean, look, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, conversation, you know, Wyland, because, you know, Wyland, you know, obviously is hugely successful, what have you, but there are other artists who, like Wyland, have really tapped into something that is very mass market oriented. You know, Thomas Kincaid, the artist of light. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right? true. Another example of yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. There's an artist. I see his stores in Florida. The, the Miami International Airport. He has oh, a store. Brito. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's another he's example. Another yeah. Right? He's another example. You know uh, who else? Um, of course, artists that have passed on. You know, have become. You know, but I'm talking about really artists in living that have really broken out into the mass. So it's. I don't know. I mean, did they were they doing what they were doing, and then they just caught fire? And consumer base sort of chose them or was it a deliberate effort on their part to go mass and try to, you know, appeal? I think, I think you have, it has to be deliberate. I, yeah. I, I don't think you could just kind of stumble upon that. I think maybe initially you might stumble upon like, you know, you do a project for Disney, let's say, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, if I keep doing this, <laughs> right? Know? So yeah, I, I think it's deliberate. I think, I think you wouldn't be able to survive in that market if you weren't really trying to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I think. So, but part of what's interesting about this conversation to me is like, you know, back in the day, the, the, the phrase commercial artist meant something specific, you know, it was like, yeah, you were a commercial artist or you were a fine artist. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking 1988, I'm thinking 1995. Right. And who were the Kincaids and the Wylands of 1995 or 1990? I don't think maybe they were out there. I don't know. But what is the, you know, what is commercial art now? Uh, what is fine art now? I can't imagine. I mean, I'm sure Wyland laughs, laughs his way to the bank, but I don't think anybody takes him seriously at Basel, you know? Sure. I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just weird because now when you, you know, when I think about a commercial artist, Mm-hmm. Right to your point, like who's a commercial artist right now? Like that's killing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just see, I don't know. Some, right, it doesn't come to mind right away. That's my point. It's like because everyone is kind of commercial in a sense, but that's not all they're doing. But if you think about like you know previous decades, especially like you said, like in the eighties and nineties, right, you could probably rattle off a few, you know big time commercial artists, you know, that was specifically what they were doing. They weren't trying to sell in museums or, or galleries, you know, they were really, you know, doing stuff for the mass market. In terms of my definition of commercial artists vis-a-vis or circa 1988 or 1990, 
you know, commercial artists were work. There were artists that were doing commercial work, right? So they were photographers, illustrators, graphic designers that were primarily probably working in advertising or some, some fashion or something like this, right? Fine art or, you know, fine artists were trying to do the gallery thing. Of course, that was, you know, way before fairs and anything else, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe they were doing museums, they were doing galleries. That's, you know, what it was. But again, getting back to for all kinds of reasons that, you know, the, the lines have, have blurred and things have shifted, you know, this idea of what commercial artists, you know, what a commercial artist is, I think has really expanded in many ways because to me now, a commercial artist is an artist trying to make a fucking living. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say, you know? And I mean, you know, it's like, if I look at, at what I do for a living, I consider myself a commercial artist, you know? Mm-hmm. But I'm also a fine artist. Sure. <laughs> and a lot of times it's the same painting that's well, it's used the same, com- it's the same, same brain, same mind, same artist. Well, yeah, but sometimes, you know, you, people differentiate, you know, well, I'm doing this for commercially, so I'm not going to put my whole soul into it. Or, I'm, sure. you know, I'm doing this strictly for museums, so I'm not going to put it on the on a cover of an album or whatever. But now, like you said, it's been blurred so much that, now a painting that I can create as a 100% authentic piece that I want to show in a museum, for instance, can also be, uh, you know, used for a commercial for Nike, you know? Right. Like that's the state we're living in now. Right. You know? Well, so this also begs the next question about, well, then w- what is fine art now? Right. So you talk about paintings that you want to sell or to to use in brand work or 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 make backpacks or stickers with. But then you have, you know, artwork that you're creating that you want to have in a museum or whatever. Well, what's the difference? So, you know what? And you'll answer that question. I, I surmise that the difference is that the fine art is that it is purely a, an idea that you originated for the idea in and of itself with no concern as to whether or not it will sell. Like it is a, it is purely art, art for art's sake, art for art's sake of your, from your mind, from yeah. your heart. That's what mm-hmm. fine art is in this context. Mm-hmm. You're creating it for yourself, for your own artistic integrity or whatever. Sure. Whether it ends up, you know, in a museum, I mean, obviously you hope that it goes, but at the end, the it's art for art's sake, to, to your point. So if that's your definition, which I agree with, yeah. but then you have artists who are doing shit like, um, like Coons, right? Sure. It's got portraits of Michael Jackson, statues of Michael Jackson and stuff like that. You know, now what? You know, that's museum quality work being sold for millions of dollars, but- you know, it's not based out of his own head. Like, obviously, there's a there's a commercial end to his thinking, right? And other artists like that, you know? So w- what about that? Like, so I don't know. It kind of throws a wrench in it, I think. Well, this gets back to the systemic issues of the art world, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, we talk about all the time how shady the art world is. Yeah. And how um, hi- hypocritical it is and how biased it is and how racist it is and how, you know, you know, I think this is an example of how how the art world can and does work. And uh, Coons is a guy that 
you know, was an opportunity. He's, he's, he look, I mean, he's, he's an opportunist, you know, he, and he had money. He was a wall street guy. Right. And I, as I understand it, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I understand he made his money on wall street and then he went into art. So he had the money to hire fabricators, hire assistants, hire artists to work for him. So I think you have in Coons, you have this interesting mix of a guy who understands the moneyed classes, understands how, how money gets made in Wall Street in New York and that commercial, you know, that very sort of, you know, co- world of commerce and capitalism. You know, he's a smart guy, so he was able to kind of figure out, you know, the art game, if you will. And he had money to kind of build a machine, right? And so he can just show up with an idea and because he's an excellent pitchman and an excellent salesman and an excellent, you know, talker, he can sell his own shit. He's an interest. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of tools in his toolbox and he's got a lot of interesting connections. And I think this is what can happen when, you know, people have resources, others don't right. when people yeah, have, exactly. and he do look, God bless him. Right. I mean, he play, he's playing his hand. Uh, masterfully, you know, will his art stand the test of time? I don't know. Well, you know, but it's an interesting, um, Coons is an interesting conversation because of course it bumps into the use of assistants, for example, or fabricators, right? You know, is art a continuum of like pure, you know, is, is there like, so, so the purest art is made of the artist's own hand and down to some mass produced Damien Hurst, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I tend to believe that art is what an artist says it is, you know, all these other people that say they know what art is. I just have to say, you know, well, are you an artist? Do you make art? No. Well then how do you know what art is? Now, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I could see that beauty is relative to that person or stuff, but I, I don't know that anybody has, you tell me, but I mean, it feels like the only people that really have the credentials or credibility and the, the expertise to speak to what art is or isn't are artists themselves. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think you know, about another, that? Another artist uh, that comes to mind as we're talking about this is uh, Murakami, mm. right? And as we're talking about the talk about blurring the lines between commercial and yeah. fine art, right. I mean, shit, you know, I mean, look at his paintings, right? The, his flat paintings became so popular and such a thing, you know, there's no brush strokes. There's no, you know, it's like a machine could have done it. Right. So it takes away all the hand yeah. that, uh, that, that, like you said, like an artist would mm-hmm. put into it. So you mm-hmm. don't see the brush strokes. You don't see the artist hand and he's working with tons and tons of, fabricators and, and artists who are working for him. And then also, for example, when he had that show at MoCA, I remember he had a Louis Vuitton store mm-hmm. in the middle of the exhibition mm-hmm. as you walk through it. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, I remember there was a huge fucking controversy. Yeah. Controversy. Cause they were like, you know, Louis Vuitton, that's not art. Right. And it's blah. But you know what? He sold every fucking, sure. every fucking handbag in that show right. was sold right. out. Right. And he just he he just kind of redefined what art yeah. is. Well, know? look, part of this is an answer or a solution to the problem of the starving artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
artists are getting smart about making money. Right. Beyond galleries, beyond grants, beyond benefactors, beyond patrons. Right. They were limited for decades, centuries, maybe. They were, you know, it's like, this is how artists made money. Now artists are saying, no, fuck that. I can make money all kinds of ways. And by the way, God bless them, you know, and in the purists or the conservatives that want to say art is only this, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I disagree. I think art is, you know, big idea that is nuanced and multidimensional and, you know, it's, it's ever evolving. And, uh, and God bless the artists that are figuring out how to make fucking money for themselves. <laughs> the hardest part for me is, uh, which is something I believe is that someone said, uh, if it looks like art, it's not art. <laughs> Interesting. You know? Yeah. And I love uh, that actually. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. And do you remember uh, who told you that? It doesn't matter. No, I don't Tell remember. me later. Yeah. And so that, and that's kind of what you see out there, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the hardest part for me because in my head, I'm an artist and I, I learned a craft and I yeah. learned how to use certain tools. Right. And so I want to use those tools and express myself in that way. But then I look around the landscape and I see like, you know, who would have thought that if you did neon lights, that would be art. You right. Know? Who thought that if you, you know, you know, put uh, mirrors in a room with tons of lighting, that would be art, you know? All right. So it's just like, it's that whole exploration. And yeah. I guess to your point, you know, it's art because the artist says it's art. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. So whatever the fuck that is, that's what art is. <laughs> well, with that, my friend, my co-host with the most man one. Yeah. We've exceeded our time. We're going to. We always exceed our time. You know, we always exceed. Well, you know. This is a highly regulated industry that yeah. we're in. You know, we only have so much uh, airtime uh, uh, allotted. So we got to go. But I want to shout out to the listeners and remind them to subscribe to this podcast, yeah. post comments, like and share to all their friends. We need the social media love. Also, of course, we've got our 24 hour hotline, 833 not real, 833 668 7325. Call us and tell us what's on your mind. All that said, we're out. Have a beautiful day, Mr. Man One. All right, sourdough. We out. Sourdough. Peace. 